every single one of us has hardship and trials and pain in your life. But every single one of us that calls on Jesus as Lord and Messiah has a one hope to call. One comfort, the same one. Ephesians 14 talks about the Holy Spirit being a down payment to the full promise. You realize the Holy Spirit is a down payment to you of the full promise, the full hope to be delivered to you. Here's a little bit in part right now that you can experience. One body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one Lord. Realize there's one head, one master, one deity, one supreme being above everything else. One God that we submit to. Every knee will bow to Jesus. Here's where the church has sometimes walked off the straight and narrow path. Paul even addresses it. He says, some of you say, I follow Paulo. Some of you say, I follow Paul. He's like, I'm thankful I didn't baptize most of you guys. What are you doing? Because he's saying there's one Lord that we follow. His name is Jesus Christ. Don't get off on the path of, I follow this teacher or that teacher, this leader or that leader, this book or this teaching. We follow Jesus. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. His name is Jesus. And Paul, again, number, I think this is five, he says, one faith. You've pledged your life to Jesus, but faith is living that pledge of allegiance out. Pastor Joe says this really well. Vote your faith. Live your faith. Act out your faith every day. Show your faith in how you use your free time and how, what movies you watch, how you interact with each other. Live out your faith. Don't let it just be something in your head, but let it make its way through your whole body. We pledge one Lord. We bow the knee. We say in Jesus' name. But faith is the way we display that allegiance. Faith is lived out every single day of our lives. One baptism. Baptism in the context of the Hebrew uh, culture was a way that you would enter a new family. If you were adopted, you would be baptized into that new family. It was a way of showing that I no longer have this set of parents or these families. I am now part of this family and entitled to the blessings and to the covenant and to everything else that comes along with this family. I now have a seat at the table because I am part of this family. The filling of the Spirit, that indwelling of the Spirit, is the internal mark of God on you. When you make a commitment to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it is a personal, internal decision. But when you come to the baptism tank and you get plunged under the water and pulled back up, it is an external expression of that internal decision. In private, I asked my wife to marry me on a hill in front of a beach, and the breeze was perfect, it was great, you know, but nobody else was there. But then in public, on full display, we exchanged vows and exchanged rings, and every person that we loved and cared for, we invited to be a part of that moment because I wanted them to know that a new thing was beginning. I wanted them to know about the internal personal commitment that I had made. I wanted every single person to know it. I wear a ring to display it all the time that I am exclusively in a committed relationship to my beloved wife. Don't tempt me. Get away. (laughs) One baptism. We are all marked by this external expression of our commitment to Lord and Savior. And finally, number seven, there's one God and one Father. There's one who is above all, and his name is God. 
He invites us into a loving relationship that we can speak to him, but never forget that he is God. He is above everything. It's to Job, he says, who are you, Job? Remember that I'm God. In Ecclesiastes, the king says, yes, remember your creator now while you're young. Remember that we all serve God. We have come from him, and we will return to him. And he has final say over every circumstance, over every decision, over everything in life. One God. And so Paul begins, all he continues this unity talk, this peace talk, with reminding the people, this new church, of all the things they have in common. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. Before we go any further, it's a good reminder to remember that the church, capital to C, not Church on the Rock, but capital C, globally through all time and eternity, every single person that has ever followed the way of Jesus, we've all been committed to these seven one things. We all share this commonality with every person that's ever called Jesus Lord and Savior. But suddenly and almost abruptly, after all of these verses on pursuing unity, Paul reminds us that we're not just a bunch of mindless clones. It's not just a copy-paste, copy-paste, copy-paste situation. There is unique and diverse uh, diversity among God's people and God's church. So he says, however, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. What Paul is teaching us is that first and foremost, though, we do not find our uniqueness and our oneness and our individuality in ourselves. You must first find your identity in God, in the body of Christ. Have you guys ever seen those pictures? Pictures made of pictures? They're called like picture mosaics, where it's a, standing far away, you see one big picture. Sometimes they're online, maybe just a big mural or a wall. And then as you get closer and closer and closer, you realize that this one huge picture is actually made of a tiny, a bunch of other tiny pictures. I don't know if we have that video or not. They may throw it up here on the back. But you realize is that God, the body, Jesus, he is one whole. But as you zoom in and get closer, you realize it's made of individual, uniquely called people. Every one of us is one. We all share the same one things, but we also have this unique makeup that Christ has put over your life. Backing up to uh, a chapter beforehand, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's interesting how much of life and history has been marred by racism and sexism and divisiveness and disunity. Humanity on its own finds any reason to separate from each other. This reminded me as I was preparing in psychology class in college, they talked about Jane Elliott's race experiment. If you're not familiar with this, it was a teacher, I think she was in the 60s or 70s, that in her classroom she ran a three-day experiment and she divided the kids according to their eye color. Blue-eyed kids versus brown-eyed kids. In the course of one day, she would elevate the blue-eyed kids and say, you're so smart, you're amazing, brown-eyed kids are stupid. 
look how they can't even put one, they can't even add two plus two. And she saw how the scores went down. But what's more disturbing is how quickly the kids latched on to this thought process. Yeah, brown eyes are stupid. The next day she reversed it. Brown eyes are better than blue eyes. And again, the same thing happened. And what you realize is that in our humanity, without a loving father, we look for all these differences and find a way for us to judge and compare each other. We find a way to divide each other instead of being unified. But God is saying, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What I'm trying to tell you right now is the church is a flex on Satan by God himself. He's saying, look at how diverse it can be. Look at how different it can be. And I can bring it all together, and it's harmonious and loving and unified. Look at this, Satan. He's showing the unseen rulers and authorities in our life how unified the body of Christ can be. That's the point of Ephesians. He's bringing in all aspects of humanity and life into the body of Christ, into the church. All people are welcome if you submit to Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Isn't that cool? I found that amazing. I was just thinking through that. I was thinking, man, we're such diverse and differently created people. Yet in God, there's no disharmoniousness about it. There's no disruption about it. We can live and be different, but live in harmony and live in love, actually. That your differences, your different unique passions and how you're made up, your callings, actually promote growth in me. Actually create love in me. And God uses all those differences. Only God is able to have a family so incredibly different, intentionally designed to be unique, while still maintaining harmony and unity and peace. So much so that it displays his glory, his goodness, and his power to the world. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Now, these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Jesus came and lived his life here on earth. He had three years of full-time vocational ministry. At the end of that time, he was murdered, put on a cross, buried, and then he came back to life. He spent a little bit more time among his people and his apostles teaching and raising them. But then he ascended and went back to heaven. Last week we talked about how he didn't just leave us high and dry. He sent the Holy Spirit to us to fill us with his power and to fill us with the ability to experience his love deeper and deeper. But not only that, he sent people to his body as well. Jesus was the good shepherd, the caretaker. He took care of all of our emotions, all these people following him. He was there to protect them. And he didn't want to leave us high and dry, abandoned or orphaned. And so one of the gifts of Christ to the body of Christ, one of the gifts of Jesus to his church was to leave caretakers for the church. These gifts from this passage are often referred to as the five-fold ministry of the church. And really quick, I'm not going to go deep in this, but I want to give you a brief overview of each one of these things. So the first thing he leaves us is the apostle. And this is different than the apostles. This is the office of the apostles. 
In Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, it says this. It says, together, and he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. We are his house, speaking of Jesus, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. What Paul is saying in that verse is he's saying that this new church was built on the hard work of the original apostles that followed Jesus. But there's a difference, and he switches here in Ephesians chapter 4. He's saying there is such a thing called the office or the gifting of apostleship. Oh my goodness, that was rough. Edit that out. Okay, here we go. Someone that moves in the apostolic gifting is a person who can both grow the kingdom of God numerically. This is what Paul creating pastors, creating systems, setting things up so the church could go about its day-to-day ministry in life. Somebody that operates in an apostolic uh, office has the ability to handle many people for short periods of time to create a system where it's growing and thriving and loving. And that's what the apostles did. That's what the apostle Paul did. That's what he did in Ephesus. He spent three years there creating a leadership team and apostles and a structure and all of these things, a food pantry, all these things, so that the church could thrive and live. And then you have the office of the prophet. The prophet's one that can proclaim God's truth with spiritual maturity. In the Bible... We see these people were often politically influential and involved in politics. They were often the voice piece of God to the political authorities at the time. And often we think of the prophet as like, they get these like, you know, mystical words from God. Often in scripture, they were quoting scripture to the authorities in the appropriate time, the appropriate words, and the appropriate season. They would take God's scripture and take it to the uh, political systems or the people getting off out of line, out of God's will to bring them back into line. But then they also move in the gifting of the spirit and God gives them glimpses into the future to speak things forth that have not yet happened. But this is not like our sci-fi movies where it's an old man, just like big beard, speaking out things about a marked kid, like Harry Potter style. Like, that's not what's happening here, okay? And so instead, it's God speaking the truth of what's going to happen forward to prepare the church, to guide the church, to guide its people to move in accordance with what God's will doing, what God's will is doing. So there's a lot of misprophecies out there or wrong prophecies. So how do you tell if a prophet is speaking truth? Does his words or her words align with Scripture? Are multiple people saying the same thing? I really believe that God's Spirit very, very seldom operates just one person. When God's saying something, if you look at, if you study other churches and pastors and movements, you'll notice that oftentimes there's a commonality of theme that's happening. Preaching Ephesians, I've never felt such confirmation to preach this book because when I first started thinking of it about six weeks before we got to this series, I started realizing that about six of the people I follow and listen to were all had just preached Ephesians in the last year, before I did. And then every person that came up and talked to me said, look what I'm reading in Ephesians, look what I'm reading in Ephesians. I said, okay, God, I get it, we'll preach Ephesians. And so that's what we did. So is God's, are the, what they say in alignment with Scripture? Are multiple people seeing it? And the greatest test is time. Time will dictate whether or not their words were true or not. And God will take care of it. And so there's the apostle, the prophet, and the office of the evangelist, or in our terminology, it might be better to say the missionary. 
This is a person that has a heart for souls. I believe it's somebody that has a special anointing that empowers their words for the presentation of the gospel. I think of some of the greatest uh, missionaries or evangelists of all time in the Bible. I think of Jonah and I think of John the Baptist. Two ugly fellows. I'm serious. One of them just got spit out of the belly of a whale. Think of all that acid in there just eating away his hair. The other guy eats bugs, smells disgusting, lives in the desert. Just a, a real Bear grills kind of guy. What a gross guy. And think about their messaging. Turn or you're going to hell. How would you feel if every week you came to church on Sunday and that's all I said? You're going to go to hell. Turn or burn. That's pretty much the message that John the Baptist and Nineveh said. But you know what happened? When he went through the city and they yelled those words, the whole city responded. They turned from the things that they were doing and they came back to God. John the Baptist had tons of disciples, people that flooded and were getting baptized by him because God empowered their words to have a special anointing to turn hearts to him. That's the evangelist, the missionary. Corey Bro, he came and preached to us a few weeks ago has a pastoral heart. But as his and him and his wife were sitting watching TV, he heard God say, don't forget about my people in Sweden. And so he answered that call to go take the gospel message to some place that does, is not gospel friendly, would not like to receive it, because God put that special call in his life. And then you have the pastor. Pastor comes from the, uh, the root word of pastor means to protect. It's where we get our word shepherd from. And the traditional purpose and definition of a pastor is a person who takes care of people. He, takes care of this, he or she takes care of the spiritual needs of the people. Much like an arborist might go to their, their, their trees, the orchard, and make sure that they're weeded well, protected from bugs, put sticks up so they can grow straight and right, produce whole fruit. A pastor's job is just to help people grow into the image of Christ. That is all. We like to overhype it and over-spiritualize it, or we like to popularize it. I follow this guy. This guy's my da-da-da-da-da. No, a, a pastor's a caretaker. A pastor's there just to take care of the day-to-day -day needs of the people. The best way that I've seen this in Scripture is when Jesus comes back and he talks to Paul, Peter, and he says, Peter, take care of my sheep. He wanted to leave the church under the care of somebody that was loving. And then you have the teacher. This calling is a person that can correctly and accurately preach and teach God's word to people. They teach how to apply it to their life. They take convoluted, hard-to-understand topics, break them down into digestible and appropriate sizes for people to be able to implement into their life so that they could understand the scripture and know it for themselves. And I would say, too, that all of these things overlap with each other. There's pre often preacher and teacher get pushed together. Often a missionary will also have to be the pastor of that range. The apostolic has to move in all, all of these often because he's the one planting it all to begin with. I have a quick illustration. Guys, we have that picture. And so this is, some, this is not unique to me. Somebody else created this. I just found it and uh, blatantly plagiarized it. But this is something, just an easy way to think of this, is that you have the thumb, the apostle. This is somebody that uh, 
He's the thumb because he functions in all the five giftings. He works with all the other fingers. You have the pointer finger for the prophet because he gives direction and shows which way to go. The middle finger is the evangelist and the missionary because they have the most or farthest reach. The ring finger, which is the pastor, because they're married or committed to the body, to the sheep. And you have the pinky finger that's the teacher because they're trying to bring balance to the rest of the body of Christ. And maybe that picture will help give you an idea of why or how the fivefold ministry operates in our day-to-day lives. Now, if you've been tracking with me, though, perhaps you're wondering, like, how is that really a gift to me? Like, I'd rather, Jesus, you just sent me the Amazon gift card, or, like, could you pull that money out of that fish again like you did for Peter? I'd prefer that instead of, a, you know, an evangelist coming to my doorstep. I want to tell you a quick story. When I lived in Mississippi, I, lived, I worked at a, uh, a boarding school slash um, summer camp. They did all these retreats and stuff, but there was nothing else to do. It was a half an hour away to the closest Sonic, uh, like, restaurant, okay? Like, there's nothing else to do. So we'd always just hang out and find things to do on campus. And one of the things we did the most was just play basketball. And so we would spend many evenings or whole weekends just playing hours and hours of playing basketball. The group that we found to play uh, of players that would want to play with us was quite diverse. It was staff and students and just a hodgepodge of all these different people. So you'd have this guy, named, this kid named Bengali, a 15, 16-year-old who was from South Africa, six foot five, a size 16 shoe, 250 pounds of muscle, and you'd have me. Not quite those same things. Then you'd have big farmer Joe and little Joe, who both were over six foot, and you'd have James Nance who was even shorter than me. And you just have this modge podge of all these different people put together. But what you need to know is that none of us were uh, refined in how we played basketball. It was more of a farmer's, play, farmer's ball, okay? If you're not familiar with that term, you get the ball and you just swing your elbows and you hit as many noses as you can. That's kind of the idea of it. And then you run and try to get into the hoop. So one day... We were playing basketball, and somebody threw the ball to me with more force than I was prepared for. I couldn't get my hands up quite in time. So I got my hands up, and instead of catching the ball, I interceded the ball, intercepted the ball with my pinky instead. And <laughs> So I look down, and I see my finger stair-stepping at an angle that I don't normally see it. That's odd. So I said, sub! I walk off, and I'm like, ow! And I'm looking at my finger, just not really sure what to do. And big farmer Joe sees me, and he walks up to me. He looks down, and pool is not quite the right word to use. It wasn't quite. He ripped my finger back into alignment. I went, ow? And thank you. (laughs) Moment of pain, but uh, he saved me a doctor's visit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work, to build up the church, the body of Christ. The word equip here in the Greek was used in relation to the physician's table. It means to put right, to help a limb function or to do its job. When doctors would operate on people, they would position or push the bone or the joint back into place so it could have full range, so it could function how it was supposed to work. In the New Testament, when you see the word for equip here, it was the same word they would use for mending a hole in a fishing net. The idea was that it would help, the gift of equipping 
is to position the church to operate in the gift of participation. Why is this a benefit? Why is this a gift to the church? The goal of the fivefold ministry is to help the church participate in the day-to-day life of doing church. You realize that church and Christianity is not an auditorium sport. It was never meant to be something that we sat, show up, watch, and then go home. You are supposed to have a part. You're supposed to have skin in the game. It is supposed to be part of your day-to-day life, not just a weekend event that we show up and eat popcorn and watch. I hope I feel something. I hope something happens. No, it's something that you are intimately involved in. When I was in college, I moved from being just a participant and observer of the basketball team to being the water boy. I got merch, so I was pretty excited about it, okay? But all of a sudden, when I'm sitting with the players, hearing the talks at the halftime, hearing full-grown, very tall, muscular men weep when they, le- when they lost in the conference, I felt so much more involved. I felt like I was participating in part of the game, not merely an observer watching it. Church was never, ever, ever meant to be a show that we just show up and observe and watch. It has always been a way of life where every single one of us is gifted, passioned, equipped to serve. We, every single one of us has a responsibility in the body and the family of Christ. This is the way that God has purposed it from the beginning. Do you realize that before Adam had a wife, he had a vocation, a job, a calling? God put him in the garden to tend it, to name the animals. And then he sees that he's alone and it's not good. That there is a gift that comes from working. We've been created to work. And the job of the vocational minister is not to lead every ministry, operate exclusively in the Holy Spirit. The job of the fivefold ministry is to equip the body of Christ to do their jobs in order that the whole body, the whole thing, can grow in love. It's really interesting seeing the world through the, through the lens of a child. It, it's cool when you get to hear those moments of how they understand or trying to learn things i had one of these moments with noble as we were driving home he's my son my my middle child and this was a couple months ago and it was just me and him in the car and he got into one of these moods where he just asked question after question after question and usually it's like is this side of the car right or is this side car the left and you know are we home yet can i have a piece of gum it's like all these random things and he just cycles those questions again and again and again but in the middle of all of that he asked god did He said, Dad, did uh, who, who, what city are we in? I said, we're in Sycamore. Dad, did Jesus use his superpowers to build the city? Well, no, son, nobody. Jesus lived in a time where there's no buildings like this. He didn't even have cars. Builder guys, and that's what my kids call construction workers, so that's what we call them. Builder guys, uh, they built the city. No, Dad, I, I think Jesus used his superpowers. And from that moment, the conversation turned back to gum and directions and are we home yet kind of thing. But it got me thinking. Often when it comes to church, 
We want a move of God. God, move in this city, move in our lives, move in our family. God, we, we just want to, a wave of supernatural power to come do something in our lives. And sometimes that does happen. We preached on it last week. There are times where God's manifest presence shows up and does something supernatural and miraculous. But sometimes, and often, the work to be done is the Holy Spirit moving through you as you go and do the literal work. To build the city, Jesus didn't come on a camel and wave his pastoral stick and then cities popped up. Builder guys wake up every single day early before anybody else gets up. They sweat in the summer, freeze their tushies off in the wintertime. They grab a hammer and they swing it. And that's how a building is built. Sometimes it requires actual, real, practical work. And the body of Christ is a growing organism, a growing community that requires work. Holy Spirit, come, but use me, work through me, empower me to be about your work. Ephesians 4.16, he says, he makes, this is Jesus, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. And I really love how the King James says it. It says, every joint supplieth. The job of the fivefold ministry is to equip the church to participate in the life of the church. The job of the fivefold ministry is to set the church, help it, direct it, and to put it into place so it can operate in its gifting to serve and to fulfill the needs in that body. You were created to participate in a unique and specific and special way in the body of Christ. No one is excluded. We were all born to serve one another in love. I want to give and present just a few ways that you could serve here at Church on the Rock. And really one way specifically. You know, a few weeks ago I shared this process of incorporating yourself into Church on the Rock. So it's not just an event or something you observe, but it starts working its way down into your life. A way for you to grow in to become part of this body. But that was all simmered down. No matter if you've been here since the beginning of church, or this is your first week, or last week was your first Sunday. There's really four things that you could do participate in church, to follow Jesus together as a community in Hunley, Illinois at Church on the Rock. Those four things are this, attend church regularly. Don't be a stranger. Live in community. You must be in a place where you are becoming known and getting to know the other people around you. You can give generously, and we've talked and spent Sundays over each one of these except for this, and serve the needs. Attend, live, give, and serve. I, I want to share something with you that's been very exciting. In the last few months, Church in the Rock has been in a growth spurt. I don't know if you realize this, but that we've been growing numerically. Downstairs, I don't know if you know this, but about 20% of our Sunday attendance is not in this room. About 20% of our attendance every single Sunday is right below your feet on the lower level in our kids' ministry program. Every single Sunday, 40 to 50 to 60 kids meet downstairs, and they worship, and they play games, and they learn verses, and they go on Bible adventures, and they connect with their peers and just have so much fun. We are a place where kids have been growing 
numerically. So much so that we are at the point that we have to, that we get to have the opportunity to open another classroom. To because we adequately serve our kids, we need to open it up a little bit more so they can have more intentional time with the leaders and teachers. That is exciting. None of you clapped. I put a pause in here for clapping, but do you realize what I just said? Is that we've grown so much. Every single week, 30, 40, 50-ish volunteers come and serve at church. Between the, 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 the ones that do the worship and the tech and the kids downstairs, somebody opened your door. Some, you were handed a communion cup on the way in. Somebody filled those communion cups. Somebody passed them out. Somebody, many of you, I saw coffee in your hand. Somebody got here early, cleaned the coffee machine, started it going, brewed it hot and nice for you. There's so many people that serve and give to this church to make every single uh, Sunday go to operate. And that philosophy is the one I had growing up. Maybe many of you did too. You know, growing up, lunch and breakfast, you're on your own. You know, you can fight with whatever to find food. But dinner, the time that we all got together, was when everybody pitched in. My mom would send somebody to go, go clear all the toys and the stuff off the table. Now you go set the table and you cut and wash green beans and you stir this and stir that. And then we would sit, and we would eat, and we would laugh, and we would goof off. And then afterwards, we all had jobs. You, go, you, you, you start clearing all the food. You put it away. You start washing. You start drying. We all pitched in to help the, the dinner happen. And Sunday morning to me has always been that family dinner time. It's the time when we all gather together every single week. We get to say hi to our friends. We get to sit, sit and eat coffee, drink coffee. We hear common teaching, common worship. We all come together every single week. And it's the time that we all pitch in, too. I was recently at a district meeting from one of our local school boards. I invited the local pastors into the meeting. And I went, and it became blatantly clear as soon as they started the meeting that it's been an incredibly hard, hard couple of years for the education system. They started talking about all the ways, the disciplinary issues that they've been dealing with in the school systems. And so they presented and they showed this system and this process they've been working with to about 20 things, like 20, 30 things of all the ways they're trying to help disruptive students restore uh, peace in the classroom. And you could just see that it was like, they've just been having a really hard time. But they stated their goal in this presentation that their goal was to teach students to be a positive, contributing member of society and to find school a safe place where they're cared for. And the thought that entered my mind as I was sitting there listening to this is that if, if this is the goal of a state-controlled, politically-influenced, secular organization that has no, not supposed to have any responsibility to teach morality or ethics or religion, how much more should the church care about our kids? How much more? If that's what they're doing, how much more should we care? And then my mind started thinking about my life growing up in church. You know, church was the place that Pastor Tim pulled me aside and said, Josh, can I show you how to honor and love your father better? Church was the place that Jason Rhodes showed me how to drive a van at the age of 13. My mother did not know. He's also the guy that helped me find my car. 
the guy that came and got me gas while I was stranded on the side of the road. Christian Atwood Fellowship was the place that I didn't, I'd never heard of a message on the filling of the Holy Spirit. But every single week, I saw a community of people display the gifting, the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the place I wasn't taught it, but I caught it. They displayed their faith time and time and time again to me. It's the place where finances and my family would get tight. We wouldn't tell anybody, but we would go to our car after church. And there'd be a love offering, an envelope with just enough money to pay the mortgage and the bills that month. It's the place that in the time for the kids, Miss Sherry, a local librarian, would come. And she would teach us these Bible stories and present them in unique and funny ways. And she would wear costumes and tell these stories. And it's the place that I started getting these Bible stories down deep into my heart that I still remember them. I remember more Bible studies, not because of me reading the Bible, but from my childhood of people telling me the stories and acting them out. I am so thankful for a Christian mother that brought me up in the faith, but I am also so thankful for Christian Atwood Fellowship where I was raised by my church family as well. Church, this is not a shame message or a guilt message. This is a message today to tell you that we have an opportunity to influence the lives of children that come here. And maybe you're saying, there's a guy that I talked to last week that said, dude, kids freak me out. You do not want me down there. I'll flip out. Maybe you're feeling that today, but can I, can I encourage you that kids' ministry often is much easier than you might think. It looks a little bit like this. Can you memorize four kids' names? Can you give them a nickname? Can you say, outside of the once a month or whatever you serve, if you see them in the lobby, can you say, what's up, spud? You have no idea what that will do to a kid. He'll feel so loved, so cared for, that you, an adult, took time to know his name. Could you go downstairs? Could you help that quiet kid standing on the wall that's too shy to participate in anything? Could you build Legos with them? You'll make a lasting impact in them. Could you wipe down a table, hold a baby, distribute snacks or Play-Doh? Could you put a wig on? Dress up like an angel? Those kinds of things make lasting impacts on our children. Can you go downstairs and watch a baby? Which allows a mother to come upstairs to hear the gospel message and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That has happened multiple times this year because of you serving and giving and spending your life into this church to allowing the gospel to go forward, friends. Every joint supplieth. Today you're going to see 20 cards and maybe you haven't heard a word I said because all you've been doing is thinking, what are those 20 cards up there? <laughs> That's okay, we record the messages, go back and listen. But on these 20 cards, each one of them represents somebody that will serve downstairs. We need 20 more volunteers to effectively run the children's ministry downstairs. That gives enough space for people to adequately have breaks and to come up in service. That gives enough people to be able to open another classroom and to staff them well. It's an opportunity to groom the people that are going to replace you in your chair in less than a decade. You realize that there are kids downstairs that in 10, 15, and 20 years 
they will graduate, go to college, have kids of their own, have careers, and hopefully be in church. Hopefully we are passing that faith and doing whatever we can to pass that inheritance of faith off that our children will grab that banner and hold it for their own and make that decision. You could have a lasting impact in a kid's life. Maybe some of you are raised in church. I'd invite you right now. Do you remember the worker? Do you remember the person that read you a Bible story or did the flannel graph or did whatever other kids thing? Do you remember the person that took a week off of work and took you to kids camp or to teen camp? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. You could be one of those people. I'm not guilting people. I'm not asking people. I'm not going to make you come and take these right now. But I would ask is that if God is stirring your heart, there's lots of places you could serve at Church on the Rock. There's lots of places you could just serve in life. Tech Team, Stonehaven, Good Vibe Tribe, Teens Church, whatever. You could do, there's so many things. This is one need, though, that's very prevalent right now. The Holy Spirit's stirring you. You're not too old. You're not too young. We'll take, there's so many student volunteers down there. If you're 16 and up, you're welcome to come serve. I encourage you as the service closes to come grab one of these cards. On the back of them, you'll see a place to put your name and number and Denise will reach out to you. All you need to do is slip it into a black box. Band, you can come very quickly. Come. Church, will you stand with me? We're going to close our time today how we started. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all, in all, and living through all.